This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Three Wise Monkeys podcast, a weekly podcast that's all about the markets and investing. My name's Andrew Page, founder of strawman.com, and I'm joined by Matt Joss from mattjoss.com. Thank you, Andrew. Very happy to be here. Good to have you back, mate. And Claude Walker from ethicalequities.com.au. Hello, everyone. G'day, Claude. Guys, big agenda this week. What are we going to talk about? I'm going to talk about Webjet, Webjet. because I bought... A few more shares today. Okay. Nice one you followed for a while. I've followed it for many years, quite a few of those without owning it. So I recently started gradually accumulating the stock. Okay, great. Well, I'm keen to hear about that. And Matt, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about um, kind of selling process and more specifically about a company that I sold a while back, mm. uh, Class. So we talk a lot about buying, going to go through like the, the thesis of a sell. Okay, nice. Yeah. I like it. Excellent. And I believe, Andrew, you might want to kick us off, I guess, going to start talking about property and your love for Australian property well, and I, how you like investing in it. I, <laughs> I thought we'd mix it up a little bit. And uh-huh. what prompted me was there's always articles in the press about property. I mean, Australians love their property, but it, it feels as though it's taken a particularly bearish turn of late. And uh, I guess that aligns a little bit with my way of thinking. And I thought, well, let's talk a little bit about that. And I guess just to bring it back to our, our topic of choice, how that relates perhaps to the share market and investing. Yeah, nice. All right. Give us the pitch. Oh, I'm first up. Okay. Uh, well, okay, so let's let's start, let's get a couple of things out of the way here. Um, yeah. Property is a, a phenomenal investment. If you go back, I actually saw a chart today doing a little bit of prep that since 1926, property in terms of its average annual returns is like less than 1% away from what the share market has done. It's mm-hmm. been a really, really great uh, long-term investment. And I, I think- I've actually seen one that property outperforms shares. I think over the last separately. 20 years, it, is, it has outperformed. This was over 150 or Oh, 150. Yeah. But does it, that it require that you reinvest all the money into the fund, which is quite difficult to do with like one house. But okay. that, was, that was the argument. But anyway. Like, the, the point, the point stands. It's, the it's point like, stands. Yeah. And pe- people will, like, you know, there's property, you know, people love property. There's people love shares. And like, really, I just don't want to get into that argument. I, yeah. I think property is great. I think it's, I think it's a wonderful uh, investment. Um, but also here, I wanted to distinguish between buying uh, a home, buying shelter, and buying property as an investment. We're an investment podcast, so I mm-hmm. figure let's let's talk about that particular uh, dimension of it. Um, and I, I guess where I come from with this is that no asset, no matter how wonderful, to quote Charlie Munger or Buffett, one of the two, is it's not worth an infinite amount. Yeah. And um, things have really cooled off here. I'm going to focus too particularly on, on Sydney, uh, which is where... Uh, we all live and yeah. I think we're closest to it. And it's also um, easily the biggest city in uh, Australia. And I think Australia and Melbourne make up 40% of the whole population. So it's, it's a big city. Like uh, if you look at the US, right, it would be the second and third biggest city, Melbourne and Australia. Like New York's the only city in the US bigger than those two I cities. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. And it's a big so, place. So, yeah. and like the share market, you know, you can have a share market that's going really great and there are stocks within that that don't perform well and vice versa. And obviously that is the same with property. So we have to necessarily generalize here um, and I, I guess I wanted to sort of weigh into this I think it, you, you sort of seem to have two different parties here there is those that it's sort of like stronger for longer it's always going to go up one of the things that kind of drives me a little bit mad is that there's this sort of saying out there that property 
or this mantra almost that property doubles yeah. every seven years. And it, it seems patently absurd that that, <laughs> that is even mathematically possible over any reasonable time frame. Of course, it has actually done that and probably then some in, in recent history. So it's so you've, you've got to give um, a nod to that. And on the other side, you've got the perma bears. You've got the people who are always saying it's a disaster, it's going to crash in a heap. And those people have been around for a long, long, long time and they've been really, really, really wrong. So I don't want to get you haven't been either extreme. I've, look, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to put my hand up. I've been bearish on property for a while now. Um, yeah, but if I might interrupt then, when I first started to hear your caution about property prices... Started subscribing to my newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're like been more or less proven right. I think that was around 2014 that you were sort of piping up to me saying that you thought that it was expensive. Well, it looks like we're on track that five, six years later, property prices will be around the same levels. That's assuming that the current falls continue. Uh, yeah, I think this is the thing. I think there's there's more nuance than either, you know, doubling every seven years and, and like crashing 30% or so. I, I think I really sit at the... I guess they're still up quite a bit from that point. They though. are still yeah. up. Although I read a stat Apparently. today that if, if property... W- and there's, there's a few big houses sort of calling for sort of 15, 20% falls. If it was to fall 20% this year, it would actually wipe out most of the bull market okay. in property in Sydney mm-hmm. since 2012. Yeah, so that's what I was assuming. But now people... Are, I guess now people are coming around to that view. You were sort of saying it in 2014. Mm. Um, in a sandwich board... Walking down the street, screaming, <laughs> screaming about yeah. some guy who has a boat when you don't have a boat because you're messing in shares. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, I, I think I think it's really. I, I just I can't I can't time markets, obviously, um, and I think it's dangerous to do so. So I, I really sort of my my view is that the odds of a downturn are much higher than they've ever been before. But also, I think one of the things that it's is more of a. Uh, I mean, we're in a downturn though. We're in even Sydney, the great Sydney, yeah. the amazing special city that Matt. I'm not sure if you were joking when you said that it deserves to be the most expensive city. I think it's a great city. I think Love it does it. deserve to be more expensive than a lot of other places. Um, but but I guess but my, it's coming down. That's the point. And au- it peaked auction, in 2017. Yeah, and auction clearance rates are pointing towards further falls, especially in apartments. I think there are specific little niches. The nice streets in certain suburbs, maybe certain entire suburbs, will be a little bit protected mm-hmm. because there's a supply constraint. But when you're looking at you know your run of the mill apartment in one of the areas that have big apartment blocks, especially now that you've got this Opal Tower thing, which is these residents have been mm. turfed out. I mean, I really feel for those people. They've probably now owe more on their yeah, apartments yeah. than they have any possible hope of ever selling it for. It's it's a real tragedy. All I was going to say was, though, I think there's a middle path here. And I think there's, there's one thing that I think is a, probably something I'm much more firm on is rather than sort of, you know, ongoing bull market or big collapse. I think it's just going to be very difficult to see the gains that we have experienced, say, over the last 10 years. I think it's going to be very difficult for that to continue. And a lot of the argument and a lot of my argument used to be about these things. You could quote things such as the median price to the median income, Mm. uh, which is like a PE ratio. Sorry, it's not a a PE ratio. (laughs) Sounds pretty (laughs) cheap. That's a bad one. Um, (laughs) It's about 12 for Sydney. So longer, long term, it's been about between four and six in the market. So there's, there's that. Um, there's also gross yields are about three yeah, percent. So yeah, I guess that's more like the PE ratio. That's a PE of about yeah. thirty-three if you want to if you want to invert it. Mm. Um, and so on that base, now would you buy a stock at a PE of thirty-three 
unless you thought that it was going to have extremely strong growth. I would in if its- it was guaranteed to go up at double every seven years. <laughs> well, that's the, the this. The, I think that's I think that's the rub, and I think that that is what is very difficult. And I think one of the things that are, of the more nuanced sort of commentators and and comments that you sort of see out there is that. I think one of the, the things that I've really learned is that the main driver of property prices is availability of credit. When there's a lot of money going around, when things are a lot cheaper in terms of servicing, that is inevitably going to drive up property prices. So we have seen things such as a significant fall oh, in interest rates, a you, significant fall in lending Yeah, so what standards. do you say, so just to play devil's advocate, I couldn't disagree with what I'm about to say more, but <laughs> what do you say to the argument that Oh, but you know, you're looking at prices. What really matters is how much people have to pay off their loans. And since interest rates are so low, actually property is really cheap. Look, I think there is some truth to that. But I think where that's a little bit of a spurious argument is, one, you still have to pay the debt back in terms of the absolute amount at some point in time, uh, even if that means you know liquidating your property to be able to do that. Um, the other thing is as well is that interest rates move. Yes, they've been they've come down a long way, but you know it's it's certainly possible that they they could go up. And I'm not going to get into the business of trying to predict interest rates, but when you're taking uh, a loan out over a 20, 30 year period, it's probably not too silly to expect interest rates are going to go up at some stage. So, yes, maybe it's more justified um, under a lower interest rate environment, but the inverse is also true. So when rates go up again, you know that that could um, very much start to unwind. So I, I think it is a little bit of a, a spurious argument. And also, not just in terms of interest rates, but general affordability as well. Like what, what if you, you lose your job? What if we get into a, a bit of a recession? Again, I don't want to try and get all doom and gloom and try and predict that that's going to happen. But these things do happen. It hasn't happened for 26, 27 years, but, but they do happen. And uh, it will inevitably happen again and so when you're dealing with something that you have to service over a period of decades i think what that does is it just puts you in an extremely risky position yes it's much more justified so long as rates stay low forever so long as your income you know that you use to support um, your loan is is guaranteed then yeah maybe that makes sense but the real world doesn't work like that interest rates go up people lose their jobs recessions come and go so i i just think it's 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 not exactly it's not exactly a good argument. So when are you going to be buying, Andrew? If you think it's going to, do you think it's going to fall? What's the, I, what's I the would takeaway? Actually, I would happily buy a house today. I don't have a house at the moment. I've rent. I've always been um, yeah. a renter. It's been a long-term conscious decision, and that's just because I prioritize equity. You just though. like dealing with landlords and that type of stuff. I love landlords. Yeah, hi, hi to all the <laughs> that's landlords. That's definitely out there. my favorite thing about renting is like the process I have to go through to get the window fixed or something like that oh man and real estate agents special hello to you as well and again I'm being very I'm being very um, yeah. mean here because there's there, there are obviously lots of good ones that, sure. yeah, the worst totally thing about are. it is I am a landlord we've got a really well. good one at the moment and I always just get everything fixed. They are straight away. Yeah, you're a nice landlord. Yeah, so look, I guess I just, I thought, look, there, there's the scene. That, that's where we're at at the moment. I think that of all the things- But when would happen- you buy? This is the real interesting well, so question. This is my so point. Like, so okay, my point every, is like, let's just say we've yeah. got, I'd say, majority of our listeners have taking a snooze because they all agree with us that property is expensive. Uh, well, not if they're a when representative would you buy? of the broader when Australian would you buy? population. When would you buy? I think, again, I would buy 
for shelter. So if I wanted a house to live and I was going to live there... Boring answer. When would you buy for financial reasons? You you would only buy if you decided... Yeah. Yeah, uh, what would be the decision? There's an investment. You, I, mean, I assume you require shelter currently. I do require shelter. <laughs> yeah. um, and I would. I, but I think it's diff- It's such a different consideration when it comes to shelter. But when it comes to an investment, I'm just not interested at this point in time. Beyond just the average returns and all the rest of it, I think one of the great things you have about shares is they're But when more. would you be interested as an investment? I would need to see yields. I would like to get a gross yield that's around 5 6%. And that's... That sounds crazy. I I say that out loud, and I realize how crazy that sounds. To Five say to six that percent. Today. Yeah, it's like a it, normal. That's how it used to be not that long ago. I, right? I, I, I know, and it, I, but I, but I'm very conscious of how crazy it sounds in today's yeah. environment. So for for me, if I started getting yields around that level, um, I, I'd start to be a bit more interested. So we'll see point, you I'm buying not. around early 2020. Then I guess <laughs> we we will see. I'm certainly not going to short it. I think that's a worry. But what was more interesting is that I uh, is that. We in in the equity space can't be too smug about all of this because if there was to be what, any smug us, if there was to be any reasonable property downturn, the Australian share market is going to be absolutely slammed for six. You know, forty percent. What is it? Thirty? No, sorry, thirty odd percent of the market is just the big four banks, right? Mm. And there's some really interesting stats here. I'm not going to read so through. So you're all saying of my them. puts on the big banks <laughs> will pay off? Uh, if you get the timing right, then yeah. I think the bigger so. issue for us is how valuations will be crunched on. You know, those price to sales ratios of ten or twelve or whatever. I struggle to see Prometicus maintaining a ratio of a hundred. <laughs> Obligatory Prometicus mention. <laughs> hey, at least we didn't talk Ding. about counterpart. Oh, <laughs> If you're playing at home, please take off the uh, (laughs) drinking. That's two drinks that pretty much guaranteed two drinks that you can have every time you play the Three White Monkeys drinking game. Well done. So, look, mortgages represent well over uh, half of Australian bank loans, uh, like a quarter of their revenues, 30% of their cash earnings. The major banks are exposed to about, you know, like it's uh, over half a trillion dollars of investment property loans. It's easy to throw a big number out there, it sounds impressive, but that's about 37% of their mortgage portfolios. Put that in context, over in the UK, it's about 17%. Uh, Over in the US, it's about 10%. And we're also in an environment too, in terms of most other measures, it's it's uh, what's the other interest only we've got um, Westpac for example has the highest exposure 25% of their loans held are by interest only paying mortgages NAB not far behind at 24% ANZ is the lowest at about 17% so they're obviously going to take a whack that's going to bring the economy so which the, ones the should I short with it um, I haven't actually dug in deep enough no, and, and I'm not a shorter by, by trade but but the other thing is of course is that there's this wealth effect that's been phenomenal I think in, in driving this really great great run we've had in the economy has been everyone's feeling a lot richer we're all spending a lot so you know the consumer discretionary spending is going to fall there are going to be real world ramifications for all of this is my point yeah we're not looking forward to it except i guess anyone under the age of 40 who hasn't been able to buy a house yeah that's that's probably a different dynamic and again if it's a shelter versus investment let's move on though shall we gents who wants to go next over to you matt all right, thank you. Yeah, so I'm gonna gonna chat today a bit about a sell work through a, a thesis um, that had not worked out too well, and I guess what that looks like. So, I guess the first thing I'd say is selling is really hard, mm. and I think that a lot of people don't give much attention to it. 
So we know there's a good body of research about um, how retail individual investors struggle. So there's a, a thing called loss aversion where you feel the pain of a loss three times more than you feel the joy. Not a of loss pain. if I don't sell. Exactly. If I don't, if you don't lock it in. <laughs> so Is that your that, catapult thesis? Oh, <laughs> ding ding! Ow. And that's the double drinks. bonus round. <laughs> you know what? I'm holding those damn things just for uh, for the one in a hundred. I told you so for another. Right, yeah, I'm not sure what that bias is called, but <laughs> back we'll, to you, man. <laughs> you can keep listening. You can hear it play out over bias. time. Um, yeah, so uh, so that's interesting. There's also some more research recently, which is around uh, how professionals are actually bad at selling as well. It turns out they're actually quite good at buying on average, and that's where most of their attention is, but not too good at selling. Mm. Um, and I'm writing it up for my blog, mattjoss.com, so it'll be coming out this weekend, digging into it. But Excellent. I thought a good case to dig into mm-hmm. um, around selling was uh, Class, which is a company that I've held before. Um, and which was, uh, yeah, which was a which was a company that I quite liked, and so just kind of I guess walking through the thesis and, and when to sell. So let me just uh, for listeners, the ASX code there is CL1. Yeah. What, what what do they do? Yeah, so they provide um, a cloud-based um, software for self-managed super fund accounting, effectively. Okay. Um, and they've started doing another one more for not just self-managed super funds, but essentially providing a, a cloud-based solution to all of the well, some of the admin that goes with that, which is pretty complicated. And traditionally, like most things, this had been a traditional software model, you know, desktop software, et cetera. And Class kind of emerged as an early leader in the cloud space. So when we first um, bought shares back in 2015, mm. uh, they were, I think they had over 16% market share of, of um, the total market and we're winning a really big share of cloud. Massive. So the thesis there was that um, they're winning like two thirds of all new subscribers to the cloud so over time everyone will have to move to the cloud um, and therefore they're going to end up with this huge dominant market position mm-hmm. uh, which is really good um, but if you kind of step back step forward to today things aren't going so well so class over i think two weeks ago released their latest quarterly mm. very anemic growth mm. and the share price has come off quite a bit so i guess a bit of that journey on the way the key um, decision point for me is to sell quickly when a thesis is broken yep uh, which sounds quite simple but a few things go into it so first you have to have a clear idea of what your thesis is yep. which means if you can writing down uh why why you want to buy the shares in the first place and we why talk you about it a lot them. for good reason yeah so i wanted to uh, add to that obviously you need to know when your thesis is broken which is a bit of a process required for that but something i don't think we always dwell on in that sentence that you just said is you need to sell quickly yeah when your thesis is broken I think that this is a great example of where that paid it. off. So I'm just going to let you. <laughs> no, no, never it. mind. We're not on that. But I keep telling the story, but yeah. I think there's a point where this quickly word is really important. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point, Claude. Um, so yeah, bought uh, there around, uh, I think, $1.85 uh, $1. or something at the yeah. time. Uh, ran up very high over the next couple of years. It was growing extremely fast. So it was growing revenue over 50% and profits much faster at that time. It was taking market share and started to become a bit of a market darling. So we mm. bought very shortly after the IPO. Ran up to... Um, 420 you know, was the yeah, high. Yeah, 420 was a high, you know, up around the mid threes. And a lot of stuff was going really well like every update was great um, but then it started uh, coming off a little bit so there was a, a june quarterly number every quarter previously had seen bigger growth in the prior quarter so it just been continuously expanding new additions and then for the first time it fell and i think that that should always be um, a first kind of when you see something that doesn't match your pattern mm. that's when you start kind of asking some more questions let me play devil's advocate yeah. isn't it just the normal course of 
any business, even the best businesses that, you know, nothing's a straight line. You, you have mm. good quarters, you have bad quarters. Is, is, it, is it a bit of a, you know, th there are a lot of factors that go into play. Can't you have really great companies that just miss a beat before resuming that very strong growth? How do you tell if it's just that or this is really a, a, a legitimate change in the trend? Yeah, great question. So we did decide to continue holding after that first mm -hmm. miss. There was some story. There's always a story with it. Um, and I think at the time it was that it was positioned really well for the next quarter to be strong, that it had been some stuff had been pushed into the next period, positioned which we by hear management, all the time. You mean, it's like, <laughs> that wasn't so great, yeah, but the yeah. next one's going to be fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, th and so thankfully, when it's quarterly updates, you only have to wait a few more months to get that information. So that's mm -hmm. one. But I think it should also, it's something that does go against what your view is. So if your view is that they're going to keep winning very large share and growing fast, then you, that's something that goes against that. And so mm -hmm. um, thinking back to the original thesis, there's a, you know, we would sell if um, there was a, another dominant competitor that had started gaining share. And during this whole time, I think there should also be something that you monitor to see if your thesis is going well, not just the company's reporting, ideally something else. And there was one huge gorilla in the room called BGL Super, ah. uh, which had something like 50% of the penetrated market, 50 to 60%, very mm -hmm. big. Um, and they were kind of, our thesis at the time was that they were going to win share off of them, mm -hmm. but then something started to change. All right, so you picked up on that. How did you realize that? Yeah, very good question, Claude. So I was in uh, correspondence, you could say, effectively with the CEO he of BGL works Super. This is good research. <laughs> um, yeah, so BGL Super was constantly, it was um, a somewhat antagonistic CEO who didn't really like the fact class was such a market darling, was constantly putting out updates about how great they're doing. But they were very empty updates um, for a long time. They were just so saying- from from class? Uh, BGL or Super, the competitor. The main okay, competitor. sorry. Class's main updates. competitor okay. would give updates. Just press releases. I wonder if he was upset about class's updates or you're talking about No, he updates. was. I think he was upset that class was the market darling okay. and on this big valuation and he was not. So anyway, uh, so he um, would continuously release these updates, um, these announcements, and I would kind of email back some of them being like, hey, you haven't given any numbers in this. What would what, what you say here? And I'd probably, probably get quite a terse, angry response. But over a few months, um, finally an update came out which uh, happened to be the exact same day that class released some uh, not too good numbers and that update said that they had signed on a hundred thousand customers now into that platform which meant they were almost as big as class already on cloud mm -hmm. and they right. had added i think twenty three thousand in the last quarter okay and that same day this is october 5th 2017 class released um their numbers and suddenly the quarterly reporting wasn't shown in the chart that it had typically been shown in. Oh, yeah. you love you gotta and love this is it like when they change reporting. Small little tells. And Matt put me onto it, but I was actually considering the company myself at that stage because it yeah. was a bit of a market darling, growing well, recurring revenue, etc. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that kept me out of it. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a good. I mean, it's it's one of those things that can happen sometimes, but there is a there is a pattern. If you not notice something that isn't reported like at the same time, like they report a week later than usual, that's a pretty bad sign. Mm. Um, if something's missing, it can be a bad sign. Um, and in this case, it was a huge fall in growth. So the prior September to that, they'd added 12,000 customers. This one, they added 6,000 something. So it was a, mm. would have been a very ugly chart, which suddenly disappeared. This, I love this story because it's such a good example of how actually if you are an analyst or even just an interested investor who is willing to put a little time in, you can actually get an advantage 
over other people and react faster. But anyway, take us to the cell, and then I'll yeah, absolutely. So again. and again, all this is public. So the the information that CEO that competing CEOs releasing is just a press release that goes out, and most people aren't reading. Um, and so yeah, that one came out on the fifth of October. Before then, you know, Class had been a, a company I really liked. I'd even had a fireside chat with the CEO, so it was a yep. it was pretty. Um, mentally invested in it I guess um, called spoke to the CEO that day um, wasn't really convinced they explained that you know it was just a bad quarter and things would turn around again um, and basically put out the the sell recommendation that afternoon okay so to sell everything of the company and I'm just gonna chip in there like basically it was a great sell recommendation the share price is a lot lower now yeah so it was about three dollars ten then and it's about a dollar thirty now and what do you remember like roughly what you Sold it for when you did when you uh, were allowed to sell. Uh, so we we got out at three dollars ten. But like, what did you? Personally? Yeah, three dollars ten. So yeah, it would have so been a bit sold higher than when that you could. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. I think the really important thing here is that by that quick action, Matt saved some real money because not long after that, a very well-known institutional investor started selling. Yeah, right. So mm. the same information flow happened, and I remember noticing this because I was like monitoring it, and they had been buying, and then this like information had come out and then suddenly they started selling so and that that's like um, yeah. i can't remember the exact fund but it was one of the wilson funds yeah started selling out mm. and of course you've got a big well thought of substantial holder selling that's going to push the price down and it's never recovered since mm. and i don't know the inner workings of their fund or anything like that but it seems reasonably likely to me that matt and the fund were reacting to the same information. But if you react more quickly, you can save some real money. And yeah. that is exactly true in the buying side as well. There's there's this sort of nexus between you want to do your work properly, but you also don't want to delay. Mm. And I think that a trap that a lot of people, uh, especially, uh, I guess, people that put some time into investing, but they don't want to think about it too much. One trap that they can fall into is that, they can think, oh, this new information has come out. I should think about that now. Um, or they or they miss it or they th- think about it too late and the share price has already moved down. Mm. And then they think, oh, well, actually, yeah, this is bad information, but the share price has already moved down. And for someone who's not watching stuff closely, uh, the fact that the share price has moved down is almost the indication that it's, it's a bad announcement. Mm. So it's very easy to just buy and hold and hold forever. I'm not saying that that's actually the worst yeah. idea either. Yeah. But if you're going to be a seller of shares, it definitely makes sense to try to process information as quickly as possible. I've lost count of the number of times I've seen a good sell have somebody get away with significantly more money yeah. than uh, than a bad sell. What about yeah. the counterfactual though? What about the person who sells only to see things recover very substantially? Yeah, so I think... I think that's a counterfactual that people worry about far too much. First of all, like if you are a good investor that picks winning investments, then if you sell and redeploy that capital, that should on average go up as well. So yes, you could sell something that then recovers, but that needs to be compared against basically your average returns. Yeah, your opportunity. So in, in my case, the question is not whether I sell something and then it goes up, but whether it goes up more than the average of my portfolio. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Yeah, and I think it's also just, it's you should be making it as a fundamental decision, right? So 
Um, it's not just that the price has gone up or whatever else and reacting to that. It's it's just like a buy. Like if you're wrong because your analysis of the fundamentals is wrong, it's not going to work out as well as if you're right. Um, yeah, so I think that's a cool point as well. Let, we'll move on, but let me let me try and um, summarize all of that. Yeah, so let me basically just, what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I just had, I guess, since then. Um, so our, the thesis of selling, it was still kind of tough because we had been pretty invested in this for well, a while. It looks obvious now, but at yeah. the time it wasn't so clear, um, right? And so the thesis was it's going to be face growing competition, wouldn't be able to grow as fast. And at, since then, revenue growth has fallen to just 10% in the last results. Mm. Um, anemic, I think anemic compared to prior highs of account growth. Uh, and margins have compressed a lot as well. So you have to spend a lot more to acquire customers mm. and they come in a lot more slowly. And so I guess that combination of things is what played out. If I'd been wrong about that, if this competitor hadn't actually done very well and everything had rebound, obviously it wouldn't have worked out. But okay. Yeah. okay. Let's talk about Webjet. Webjet. Claude, you bought some Webjet. I think everyone I knows Webjet, right? I we do. don't need to give a, a summary of that. Well, I think, you know, it. most people, there might be some people who's... Personal yeah. assistants do the booking. So. <laughs> okay. I, don't, I use Skyscanner myself actually quite a lot. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so explain what Webjet is. So Webjet is a website where you can go and compare the prices of flights mostly. They have hotels and cars and caravan. I know, they have a few different things mm. you can hire. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the business that people know. Webjet.com.au or Webjet.com, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the point is it's got a good brand there and a great business. And so for many years, I was sort of skeptical of this business because I was, I was too for the record. Not all of those kind of booking businesses, those aggregation businesses, they don't always do well. And especially when you've got, uh, I guess, powerful suppliers in the airlines, Mm. it never made sense to me why somebody would pay $35. Is it $35? In the vicinity of $35 for booking on Webjet when they can get like the exact same price from the airline themselves. I used to go to Webjet and then book it on the on And the, I, on the I'd done that as website. well and I go to Skyscanner and do it. At least like the Skyscanner thing's a bit smoother because what happens with something like Skyscanner is that you just click the link uh, and it takes you straight to the airline's website and then they sort of sort out the commission between them. So you get arguably a lower price on Skyscanner. Mm. But... So anyway, it took me a long time to come... And this is important because this is why I'm buying the stock, mm-hmm, right? It mm-hmm. took me a long time to actually come around to the value proposition for the main part of their business that basically generates all the profits at the moment, mm-hmm. which is this direct-to-consumer part of the business. So when I was younger, I would always be very, very cost-conscious on all my flights and all that sort of thing. Before and you flew first class all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't fly first class. <laughs> and... Private jet. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what happened was I then booked at one point a flight over Skyscanner. The machine that books the flights had given me two hours to do my change at Florida. And as people might know, immigration is not exactly the quickest thing ever in the United States. Mm-hmm. On top of that, basically the the flight was 15 minutes late from Berlin to Florida. So I'm just freaking out the entire time. Oh, I'm going to miss my connection. I'm going to be stuck in Florida. Like not, not something I intended nor wanted. I was also meeting my friend in Columbia so we could make connecting flights to some sort of Island we were going to. Basically I was so many jokes I could make. I'm not going to good. I was stressing (laughs) out the connecting flight to Columbia. The immigration slowed you down. <laughs> no, immigration didn't slow me down, actually. Oh, like, okay. I, If immigration had slowed me down, I would have been gone because I had about an hour and 
10 minutes to get through immigration and get onto my other heart mm. flight. And I'm running through Florida air, airport with my like... How, how does this relate to Webjet? <laughs> I'm getting there. He's getting there. He's setting the scene. Anyway, so basically I'm freaked <laughs> out. I'm like in a high state of like... Uh, and he's high at the airport. So yeah, okay, and yeah. I'm yeah. on his way to Columbia. Oh God. <laughs> if I miss this flight, I've got to deal with some like, sort of... There's no one there. If I call... I, I Googled around because I knew this was coming I, once I realized there was such a short changeover I was like there's a real chance I'll miss this flight so I'm trying to get in contact with the people I booked it through like nothing exists it's just all sort of like numbers and you go into the ether and you yeah, can forget about it there's no one you can it. talk to because you've booked through some of the one of these cheap agencies which yeah, seems exactly. good at the time and there's no, so there's no, there's no one no, to talk no to you have there. no idea what's going to happen it's I just going to become it. some absolute nightmare mm-hmm. and you're probably going to just end up buying a new flight as it happened I got there you know, with 33 minutes to go before the flight and the land Peru people or whoever it was basically were just like, ah, never mind, and like rushed me through security and got me on the flight for which I'm eternally grateful and would always fly that airline now. However, the point was that I will never, ever, ever book through Skyscanner or any of those like random sort of cheaper aggregating Mm. flights that will, will do it for you. And then it was compounded by the fact that when I went on and planned the holiday in which I proposed to my fiance and I wasn't so cheapo this time I booked through nicer flights through Webjet and then of course we wanted to change a few plans and blah 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 and it was so comparatively easy cost me 50 bucks a cop 50 bucks a pop to like call up Webjet and have someone talk me through my options and basically the full thing that I would want from someone I don't want to go into a travel agent anyway if I can just call someone, which you can with WebJet anywhere around the world, call mm. someone, talk to someone, figure out your options, that's only $50. And if you can figure out yourself on the website, it's even cheaper or even free. So you're saying it's more exp- ostensibly more expensive, but there's a far higher level of service yeah, so that comes with it. I think that I thought it was more expensive when I was still had my sort of very young adult brain on with that was like travelers before the, the <laughs> wisdom of your many years I don't think it's uh, wisdom I think it was just like new priorities where I wasn't like the mission is to travel as cheaply as possible and more it was like the mission is to have a nice time when I travel yeah that is a relaxed. transition that we all I'm, make I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you straight out of Good. the gate on that a lot of the time so I think whenever you're dealing with any reasonably sized company you will very 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 easily without like two minutes of googling you will find phenomenal experiences from consumers and you'll find very very bad ones it's it used to be always the argument whenever it was like Coles versus Woolies oh my local Coles is so much better than Woolies ergo Coles is a better investment and so I don't deny your experience one for one second but I bet you that had you for whatever reason had a bad experience then that would have colored you in a very very different way and what matters at the company at the higher level is not what one person may have had it's the aggregate of all of those so what I guess what I'm asking is how is it that you you can draw a line from your your own subjective personal experience to what the the broader well that value that's prop a, is that's a perfect question and the answer is in basically the numbers of the total transaction value that's going through the webjet platform very nice metrics yeah. and and that keeps going up in year, year after year and so for a while there when i was like why would people ever use this they don't even want their 35 dollars i was like why does this keep going up yeah. year over year then of course sort of like grew up a little bit and had my own priorities change and then i was like i'm never not using webjet now you could understand it now and now yeah. i can understand why their ttv goes up 
every single year, pretty much. I'm pretty sure every single year. I, I don't think it's ever gone I down. Pretty th- I'm pretty sure that's true. Maybe yeah. in like the GFC or something it went down. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, the point is... But that's a really good point, Claude, right? So you're collating different pieces of evidence, right? So you've got all this data yeah. from the company TDV, but you're kind of fitting that in with your own experience and, and other things, right? It's exactly. Like what was I was lacking before to my to my expense, unfortunately, because I should have bought Webjet way years ago, yeah, is yeah. that I couldn't Should, understand why yeah. this business was so good. Anyway, so basically... So it's they got, tend to develop a very loyal customer base, I suppose. I, I think they do. Don't like, even bother shopping it, around. It. They, I wouldn't even bother now because I... Not only that, but I want the... Th- I want to pay them the 35 bucks so that then I can call them back later and pay them another $50 because I want to change my flights around in this way. And I'm on holiday and every dollar is, every moment in the holiday is precious. Mm -hmm. You know, I just proposed to my um, fiance, I don't want to spend time even on the internet figuring stuff out. Mm -hmm. I just want to call someone up, get it done as quickly as possible, go back to my holiday. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really good point around um, not even thinking about something else because I think that's where a brand has value is it just becomes the default dis- decision. Yeah, not even going to so price Claude's compare. had that experience. And he's like, right. I'm not even going to bother anymore. And any most people who use Webjet don't consider, they don't like shop around Webjet versus Skyscanner each time. No. At some point, they made the decision, Webjet's the one to use. Trusted and, name. And that's it. Like, and, that, and then, you know, much lower advertising costs, much but better margins. Anyway, so this is just part of the story. Now, mm. the question is, is this good business? I think, you know, there's absolute value there. There's a price at which this is absolutely has value. And I think that this core business to consumer part of it will uh, continue to be a, a good business for mm-hmm. many years. Okay. Whether, wait, 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 wait. But now what's happened is over the last few years, I followed them as they've expanded their business to business. Mm-hmm. Uh, B2B B2B so like this is actually more to do with hotels ironically than flights and it's basically a system that allows mostly independent travel agents but all sorts of people who uh, might want to provide hotel rooms with hotel inventory now this kind of has synergies from their original business because they're obviously dealing with airlines well airlines sort of are their own real estate agents as well and they want to have an inventory of hotel rooms. So Webjet, ironically, whilst getting the flights off the airlines, can then supply them with hotel room inventory. So this is sort of like a booking engine that they provide to all manner of people, including airlines. And this took sort of quite some time to really make to make a lot of progress. The, the, the big sort of news recently was that in... FY18, they made 5.5 million or well, 5.4 million profit off uh, the B2B segment. So mm. previously, this had been a loss making segment that had been sort of carried along by the, the quite good consumer business that we just talked about. Mm. And that's moved into a profit. So this is, a, this is what I would call a hidden inflection point because mm-hmm. now I try nice. to look for inflection points after Matt taught me about them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to challenge uh, you again. Um, what a challenging. Well, you know, I, it's, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but I'm going to do it anyway. Bring it um, out. So, yeah, okay. It's undeniable. Phenomenal history. Good, good experience. All that kind of stuff. But, you know, 
there's Expedia. There, there are some very, uh, very, the very, very side. large, large companies globally that are doing all of this yeah, kind of stuff. So I, I mean, history would tend to tell us that this is tends to be a you know a winner or you know the top one or two players tend to take win and then everyone else yeah. loses. What makes Webjet going to be one of the top you know few players globally that's going to allow right. them to succeed? So I don't think that Expedia is a threat to Webjet's consumer brand in Australia. Not in Australia, the whole, perhaps. Yeah, so, yeah, and that is like the core profit engine. But we're, we're nothing. We're but 25 they're the million. Online, yeah. They're the online travel agent. Like, realestate.com.au is the, like, real mm. estate portal. It's yeah, like, but, they, but they, all of them are going overseas because they've maxed out yeah, their growth, and that's they're what, mature, and, and it's like, where do we get the growth? Yeah, we go overseas. True, and then true. when they go into that pond, now you're going against companies yeah. 100 times bigger. So, but bigger. what I'm trying to say is that the... The business consumer, Australian business consumer side, that's not your like growth story. This is why you're buying. It's massive. This is like your downside protection. This is a nice little value. Base of earnings. This is a nice little mm. like earnings mm. engine that's going to keep on bringing in money and cash and profits, which they can then allocate into other ventures, which they may do well, they may do poorly. You see mm. this in Seek, you see this in car sales, you see this in real estate that come you. These guys have these like quasi monopolies in Australia mm-hmm. that they then use to deploy the cash elsewhere and they do that to varying degrees of success. Mm-hmm. And that B2B is the opportunity. And the B2B is the opportunity. And finally, after following this development of this after years, I think it looks like it is hitting some sort of inflection point. That's for two reasons. One, it became profitable last year. And look, it it has built this through acquisitions. You're referring to that segment became profitable. Yes, that segment became profitable. And, And then also, they recently did a capital raising whereby they bought... Um, destinations of the world, a market-leading B2B travel business that operates a bunch of different yeah. in geographies. And basically, the point is that this then, uh, to quote the press release, represents a substantial increase in web beds. That's their B2B business. Web beds scaled and consolidates web beds position as the number two global B2B player. So just what you were talking about, about how mm. they're, they're going to be the number one, number two kind of thing. They're in kind of in this B two B web booking thing on a global level. They are saying okay. that after this acquisition, which they've completed, yep. it is a number two uh, player there. So, and it's already profitable. They say it's going to be EPS um, accretive and basically that they'll get synergies out as well. So this should boost the property profitability of that. So now what I'm saying is we've got one segment that's been profitable for years, another segment that's just become profitable and they're growing through acquisition and one that according to their guidance, et cetera, organically and according to their track record organically. So basically growth plus growth gives hopefully a very good runway and maybe even accelerating growth since the web bed segment is off a lower base. Yeah. And on top of that, because of this capital raising, that's brought the price down to sort of a reasonable less than 25 times earnings, which basically is not too bad for a good quality company. If I'm right about the inflection point, then it'll be really good. And then on top of that, the in, like the directors were participating in the nice. uh, in the capital raising to us, like a notable yeah, degree. Big inside ownership, right? Not massive, um, but you've got. But they've got some pretty. They're not nothing stakes. No, I'm not really I'm like not saying they own forty percent. I'm not. But. I'm not touting it on insider ownership, um, but there is still something like twenty uh, percent, I think, of sort of insider yeah, holding. So it's like nice, close. Anyway, I'm, I'm pretty interested. Basically, more of what I'm saying is that whilst we have seen insider selling in the past, 
Uh, actually, it's not twenty percent, by the way. I think I got that wrong. It's much lower. Oh, well, it's okay. They've got they got skin in the game. Hey, so what's interesting about this, and then we can move on, is that you you have you you quote a PE of less than twenty five, um, which Comsec tells me is twenty four. The consensus guidance, according to Comsec, which I think comes from Morningstar, is for fifty four percent compound annual growth in earnings over the next couple of years with dividends almost more than doubling over that period of time. So something is out there. Well, according what's to- the bear case, and then we can we can. Put a bow okay. on this. First entire. of all, it's thirteen percent insider ownership. Just to clarify that earlier point. Okay. Ah, uh, look. The, what's the bear case? Look, I think you know global recession would definitely hit them hard. So these are cyclically exposed or as cyclically just people sensitive. Traveling so much, right? I guess. Is okay. the yeah, and I also think just like because the vast majority, and this is probably the biggest risk that I would see, is because the majority of their profit comes from Australia. I imagine there's a fair bit of operating leverage there as well. To, I have to challenge you again, sir. Good sir. Well, well, no, was it last week or the week before? You you were you were saying you were shorting U Media well, on the basis of an just, expectation yeah, look, of, so a, of an Australian recession. Yeah, so that's what I was. You're just shorting like, the banks on an Australian recession, but you're going long on Webjet and then saying at the same time that it's going to be knocked over. But that's what I'm saying about the biggest risk for Webjet okay. is that this recession thing. Now, that's the whole point of my shorts. Isn't because I'm like bare, I'm like epically long. I think yeah. everybody knows you're balancing that. it out by like, having I some have different positions. Far everyone just to clear. Like I've got way more money invested in everything going well than I do in things badly. I have some stocks, pretty much all of my stocks for reasons we were discussing earlier would have their share price go down in the case of an Australian recession, Mm -hmm. which is why I have then some hedging positions that are supposed to really go a lot down. That's a good answer, but I had to ask it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fine. But I'm saying, yeah, look, this is one of the stocks that would probably get hit even harder than other companies I own that have majority outside revenue or they're in healthcare or whatever, there's some sort of resilience there. I think Webjet would be hit hard in the case of an Australian recession. But on the plus side, you know, they have got increasing amount of overseas revenue as well, okay, including cool. B2C in there as well. All so right. one Webjet, one to watch. Next Gents, time. let's wrap this up. Thank you very much for your time as always. Matt, how can people get in contact with us? Uh, how can they get in contact with us? Three Wise Monkeys Podcast at gmail.com. Send us send us T H R E E, not the yeah. number three. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. Gents, thank you very much as always. I think we've talked enough. Let's just let's just put a pin in it. Until next week, uh, I'm Andrew Page. Thanks for your many challenges, Andrew Page. I lo- I lo- look, I've got I've got to give it as good as I get it, my yeah, friend. Yeah, you do well. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>